let's get into the message today. And uh, we're talking about David. We're in a series called The Shepherd King. Uh, I just want to clarify, some people ask me, you know, Scott, are we talking about, you know, they were looking at the graphic, and they thought it was Stephen King. They said, what in the world are we going to go with Stephen King? I said, no, you got to read it a little bit better. It said Shepherd King. Oh, okay. All right. So the Shepherd King, talking about David, and, um, and this has been a great series so far. You know, if I had to pick a fight, if I had to pick a fight between Conor McGregor and Taylor Swift, you see him right there. Conor McGregor is the ultimate fighting champion. He's kind of a big bully, you know, in the UFC world. And, um, and he's mean, he's pretty tough, and a very intense individual. And uh, you can kind of see the intensity right there. And, I, and, so, and then, of course, Taylor Swift. You know, I don't have to explain too much about Taylor Swift, but if I had to pick a fight, you know who I'd fight? Conor McGregor. And you're like, why in the world do you want to fight Conor McGregor? And here's why. It would be over very fast. <laughs> it might be painful for a little bit, but then I'd be over it, and they're done. But you see, Taylor Swift, she's brilliant. But she's also brutal to anyone that crosses her, an ex-employee, an ex-boyfriend. And if you become one of those... She write a song about you. <laughs> a number one hit. And it lasts forever. It never goes away. What makes Taylor Swift so popular is that she puts into words what a lot of people are feeling. This need for revenge. Revenge. Every person wants revenge with someone at some point. In fact, we're all born with a desire for revenge. We're born with it. Somebody does you wrong, you do them wrong. Someone hit you, you hit them back. If someone messes with you, you mess with them. Even the greatest king who ever lived David was not immune to the temptations of revenge. And we're going to look today at what I believe may have been David's finest hour. If someone asks you, hey, what's the greatest victory that David has ever fought? I would dare say that most of us might say that the greatest victory that David ever fought was when he defeated Goliath. But after reading our story today, I believe that David's greatest victory wasn't won on a battlefield, but it was won in a cave. It wasn't a giant that he was facing on the outside. It was a giant that he was fighting from within the giant of revenge. And see, after killing Goliath, you would think that Saul would just love David. And in fact, he did for a short little bit. But over time, he began to hate 
he began to hate David. He began to try to kill him. Not just once, but many times. He tried to kill David. In fact, eventually, David is on the run for 10 years. 10 years of misery. I mean, what, what can Saul's beef? I mean, what's the problem here? Well, after killing Goliath, you know, David, he won the Medal of Honor. David was the MVP of the Israel army. David was given the Presidential Medal of Freedom, right? David, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. Overnight, David became a celebrity. He was the heavyweight champion of the world. He went viral. And his popularity, his approval rating, started getting higher than King Saul's approval rating. All of a sudden, King Saul's not the man anymore. David had become the man. Everybody was singing David's praises, and nobody was singing King Saul's praise. And on top of that, we kind of talked about it last week, you know, David is going to be the next king, and Saul knows that, and he doesn't want that. David is not part of his family. He wants the kingship to go to his son, Jonathan. And so you got all of this jealousy, this hatred building up in King Saul. And it's coming to a point. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, King Saul, after trying to kill David through, through hitmen and other people, he decides in 1 Samuel chapter 24 that he's had enough. Everybody, nobody can get the job done. So King Saul says, I'm going to get the job done. And it's a little bit overkill in how he's doing it. And we pick up the story and we see how he rolls here in verse number one. The Bible says, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En. Gedi. Now, En Gedi is a part of the Judean desert. The Judean desert is one of the ugliest places on the planet. It is dry, it is desolate, and nobody survives the Judean desert if you're stuck there very long. But En Gedi was this little oasis in the middle of this desert. It had beautiful meadows, had a waterfall. It was a place of safety. And Saul, he knows that David is out in the desert area. He's thinking if, if David's hiding, he's hiding in a place called En Gedi. Now, David is not in En Gedi. He's around in the desert. He's not far from it, but he's not hiding there because he knew that was obvious. He would be easy to, to, to be found you know, in this oasis. And so, you know, that's where King Saul thinks he is. So they're marching on their way. And the Bible said in verse 2, Saul took, his the overkill, 3,000 young, able men to hunt one guy. All right? And so Saul, I mean, Saul's hatred for David had reached the match. And he's going after him. And they set out to look for David. And his men, David had a few men with him, 
knew the crash of the wild goat. It sounds like a place in the Lord of the Rings movie. <laughs> the crash of the wild goat. How many of you know where that place is? Anybody? You know, here's the thing. Nobody knows where the place is. And that's the point. David, he thought, man, I'm going to go find a place called the crash of the wild goats. I just want to say it one more time, all right? He's hiding there in this area. And he sees Saul and his army coming by. And so Saul, you know, so David goes to hide into a cave. Into a cave. And, and, and a, rare a rare opportunity happens. David has a chance to kill Saul. He has a chance to end his misery. He has a chance to stop hiding. He has a chance to sleep in a nice warm bed after 10 years and have a nice meal at a table. He has a chance to end Saul's life and to become a king right there, right now. He has a chance to do all of it. He has a chance for revenge. Verse number three. Saul came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. The Bible said that Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. There's really no way to put this. But Saul feels the call of nature. <laughs> and needs a potty break. He goes into the cave. He locked the door, thinking that he has his privacy. Had no idea that David was in the stall next to him. And then Saul got some business to do. In fact, what many scholars, they believe that what Saul had to do was some serious business, if you know what I mean. <laughs> because what he would have had to done was he had to take off his armor, he would have to take off his clothes, and put it on his side. And in that cave, he was doing his thing, thinking he's private. No one's there. And here's the, here's the opportunity for David to take his life. I mean, think about it. Saul is in the most vulnerable position ever. If there was a moment to do it, David could do it right here. And, and, and David's men knew it too. The Bible says in verse number four, the men said to David, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. I mean, this is your moment, David. This is it. And you fully expect to see David to do, to take out his sword and, and, and to do a, a, a horrible death to Saul in this moment. But he doesn't. Instead, David, the Bible says, he crept up unnoticed. 
he cut off a corner of Paul's robe. That's why he wasn't wearing it. It was all on his side. That's why we know what's happening here. If he was wearing it, he would have felt the tug. But because the clothes were kind of put aside, he snuck over there and cut the corner of his robe. And the men, David, men, that's like, David, what? I mean, you're not the only one on the run, too. We'd like to get in a warm bed. We'd like to have some food that we don't have to live off the land. We can actually enjoy a nice meal at home. David, why? Why didn't you end this? And they're disappointed. The Bible said in verse 5 that David afterwards was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. I mean, David is feeling guilty. He's feeling bad about what he just did. And the men are like, that was nothing. He could have done more. Why didn't he kill him when he had the chance? And we see the answer in verse number six and seven. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. The Lord's anointed or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. See, David knew that it was against the laws of God to, to kill the king. God made this plan from the beginning. Don't disrespect, don't dishonor the king. Much more, kill the king. You see, I think about this. When, you're, when you and I are facing a choice, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the situation is, you can always know what to do by asking yourself one simple question. And here's the question. Is this the right thing to do? Is this the right thing to do? And that's called integrity. Integrity is doing the right thing. Even, even when the pressure is on to take matters into your own hands. You ask yourself, hey, does this violate God's word? Does it violate my conscience? And I believe that David had all intent with the man. They were urging him. They would say, hey, do this. And I believe that David had all intent to take out Saul's life. But at some point, his conscience. And remember what God says. He said, you know what? I need to do the right thing. I need to do the right thing. The Bible said in verse number seven, and with these words, David sharply rebuked his men. I did not allow them to attack Saul. I mean, some of them were like, man, David, if you're not doing it, I'm doing it. I said, no, none of us are. And the Bible said that Saul left the cave and went his way, had no idea what was going on. I want you to look at verse 8, and I want you to notice in the next few verses, David's humility. It's inspiring. He said, with, the Bible said in verse 8, David went out of the cave. He called out to Saul, my lord, the king. He was still his king, whether he would be a good king or not. He recognized that he's still my king. And Saul looked behind him, and what he saw was David bowing down low. Bible says he was face was prostrate to the ground. Place of humility. 
David said to Saul, verse number nine, and said, why are you listening to men when they say that David is bent on harming you? Those are lies. I have no desire to hurt you. And he said in verse 10, this day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. And some urged me to kill you, but I spared your life. I said to them, I would not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. See, David recognized that revenge is not his responsibility. It belonged to the Lord. He said in verse 13, as the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. And David finished, the Bible said in verse 16, when he was done talking, King Saul asked him, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. Because Saul knew, Saul knew that David spared his life. He said in verse 17, you are more righteous than I. You have treated me well, and I have treated you badly. In other words, I have treated you evil for good. But you, David, have treated me good for evil. He said, you have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, and you did not kill me, and you could have. He said, when a man finds his enemy, does he let, let him get away unharmed? And then he said, may the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. What a story. What an incredible story of grace and mercy. And I want us to learn some things from this story. I want to talk about three roads that you and I can take in the way that we treat people. There's the low road, there's the middle road, and there's the high road. Let me take the time to talk about each one. The low road. The low road in this story is personified, if you're taking note, by King Saul. The low road. What does King Saul do? What does he do? He returns evil for good. And if this is how you roll, if this is how you live, if you're always looking just to harm people just for spite of, for no reason, you know, evil for good, if this is how you live, you're a maniac. <laughs> you're a bully. I, I pray that nobody lives this way. I hope no one lives on this road. But we see them from time to time. 
You see it when they're driving down Hall Road. You know, it all of a sudden it comes out of nowhere. I said, what, what's going on? Someone give you evil for good. I said, what, uh, what, did I, what, did I do to, what did I do to deserve that? You have a choice to make, right? You know, do I respond? How do you respond? But listen, you know, don't be a maniac. Don't be a bully. The low road can solve. That's how he lived. The middle man, I'm sorry, the middle road is personified by David's men. They wanted David to return evil for evil. And by the way, that's the normal way of thinking. That's how we think. This is where most people live. It's like two boys who got into a fight at school. And the teachers separate them and say, okay, what's the problem? What happened? And the one little boy said to the teacher, he said, well, teacher, it all started when he hit me back. <laughs> eye for eye, tooth for tooth, we return evil for evil. And by the way, if this is how we roll, if this is where you live, if you're taking notes, you're predictable. This is predictable life. This is a predictable way. This is normal way of thinking. In fact, didn't even, that's easy. That's easy. It seems like a sensible thing to do. It's normal for human beings to do it. You hit me, I hit you back. You wrong me, I wrong you back. You throw me under the bus, I'll throw you under the bus later. It's predictable. The middle road. But then the high road is personified by David. And this is the, this, the high road is the supreme level. When you return good for evil. And not many people travel on this road. Many people travel on that middle road. But very few travel on the high road. You see, David, he sees things in a complete different way. He took the high road. He asked himself, is this the right thing to do? He wanted to live a life of integrity in the way that he responded. What is the right thing to do in this situation? And here's the deal. If you live on this road, if you travel on this road, if this is how you roll, you're remarkable. You're remarkable. If you're taking notes, we've got down the screen. There you go. Remarkable. The high road. And David's response, David's approach in the story is incredibly remarkable. And here's why. See, during this time period, most people were taught eye for eye, two for two. You were taught that. And that was just the world they lived in. And David's men, they wanted to get even. They wanted revenge. Because that's predictable. That's normal. But not David. See, the way David responded was so upside down that he was actually ahead of his time. When Jesus showed up, Jesus taught the people the opposite of revenge. He not only taught it, but Jesus lived it out. The Apostle Peter, he, he saw Jesus unjustly, unjustly mistreated, unjustly crucified. Peter, who saw Jesus 
who was innocent and who was sinless, who was treated in a horrible way, Peter saw how Jesus responded. He saw Jesus respond good for evil. And years later, when Peter is an apostle, he's writing a letter in 1 Peter. He's writing a letter to Christians who were being persecuted unjustly. And he doesn't go all David's men and say, hey, you know, you're being treated unjustly, you know, beat them back. But he goes all Jesus on them. And he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he wrote to the persecuted Christian. He said, do not repay evil with evil. But Peter, that, that, that's natural. I know. But don't repay evil with evil. But Peter, you don't understand. Look what they did. I, I know. But don't repay evil with evil. But, but, but Peter... They deserve it. Yeah. But I'm telling you, don't repay evil with evil and insult with insult. He said, on the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Know what the word blessing means? Favor. Grace. Respond evil with blessing, with favor. Because to this, he said, because to this, you were called. And Peter's saying, he said, hey, listen, if you're a Christian, this is what we're called to. We knew that we were going to be mistreated. I mean, come on, they crucified our leader. What were you going to expect? They were going to come after us. And he would say to the Christians in that very first century in this letter, in the rest of verse 9, he said, because to this you were called. You're called to do this. You're called to live on the higher road so that you may inherit a blessing. He said, this is the, the remarkable way to live. Don't be predictable. And then Peter, he's in the first century, in verses 10 and 11, he quotes David from a thousand years earlier. And he quotes David in verse number 10, and here's what he said. For whoever will love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and they must respond and do good. They must seek peace. And they must pursue it. They must chase it down. Chase after peace. Again, David was ahead of his time. And, and Peter is writing it to Christians who are being mistreated because of their faith. And where did Peter get this from? Well, Peter got this from watching Jesus and from listening to Jesus. In fact, and it was Peter that sat on the front row of church when Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He was sitting in, he would have been taking notes with his handout notes. Right? Jesus would say, hey, you know, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down because he wrote it down. 
and stuck it somewhere in his Bible where it stays there and hand out notes, cemetery grave, okay? Let's say, oh, I got all my handouts from last year. It's stuck there, but he's reminded of this. And, and it's listening to Jesus back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, when Jesus said these words, it said, we have heard that it was said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. Right? He said, that's normal. That's what everybody does. That's predictable. That's normal. Get an even, it's easy. He said, you've heard that. But then Jesus said in verse 44, but I'm telling you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, when we take the high road, when we return good for evil, it might be the most Christ-like thing that you do. You're more like Jesus when you respond good for evil. It's remarkable when you take the high road to return good for evil. Now, two questions I'm going to take away here. The takeaway is the two questions I want you to think about. Number one, it's the first question. What story do you want to tell? What story do I want to tell? You know, if you were to fast forward David's life 30 years down the road, he's an old man, got little grandkids running around all over the place. He's sitting around the bonfire and all the kids say, Grandpa David, Grandpa David, can you tell us a story? Can you tell us a story about when you became king? Well, yeah, kids want to gather around. Let me tell you about the time I became king. I was hiding in a cave. And then old King Saul, he comes looking for me, but he had no idea that I'm in the cave. And he had to go to the bathroom. And I got him. He was, hey, I saw the full moon in the light of that cave. I took out my sword, and I got him. I took him out, and it was awesome. I dragged him, dragged his body, and showed his army, and that's how I became king. That's how it was done, kids. Y'all like that story? <laughs> Let me ask you, is that really the story you want to tell? Is that the story you want to tell of how you become king? You see, the question we should ask ourselves before we respond to evil, what story do I want to tell? And if you're taking notes, it's a powerful thought. The decision that you make today is the story you're going to tell tomorrow. What kind of story you want to tell? And when it comes to revenge, what do you want to say? Do you really want your story to be yeah, I got even. I showed him for what for. Sure, you can go that way. Predictable, but so unremarkable. What story you want to tell? Here's the second question as we process this message. What would it look like for you and for me 
to return good for evil? What would it look like? And if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, you really don't have an option in this. Because this is basic Christianity. This is Christianity 101. What would it look like for you to return good for evil? You know, when you think about him, when you think about her, when you think about them, when you think about your ex, when you think about your ex-employer, when you think about your ex-boss, when you think about what your son or daughter has done, when you think about your parents, when you think about your mom or your dad or your neighbor or that stranger, when you think about them, what would it look like in that specific incident, in that specific contact, in that specific relationship, what would it look like to return good for evil? And to use Peter's word, what would it look like for you to be a blessing to someone who has hurt you or offended you? And if you decide, hey, listen, I want to live on the high road, and you decide to do nothing, if you're taking notes, if you decide to do nothing, then you're showing mercy. You decided, man, I'm not going to respond evil for evil. You're showing mercy. Good. But if you take it a step further, and to actually do something when they don't actually deserve it, you're taking notes. That's showing grace. That's showing grace. And if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is our best opportunity, my friend, to be like your Father in heaven. You see, the greatest story, the most remarkable story ever told, is God returning good for evil. God giving his son for our sin. That's the gospel. And if you're a Christian, that is your story. And when we can do nothing, we don't return evil for evil. That's mercy. But to do something, we return good for evil. Maybe you pray for them. Maybe you offer some type of kindness. Even when they don't deserve it. That grace. Here's what David would tell us. He said, don't, don't settle for even. That's easy. Predictable. Right? Something that's remarkable. Make a remarkable story of mercy and grace. In other words, do precisely for others what they don't deserve. And when you do, you're like your father in heaven. So what would it look like? What, what would that look like for you today, this week? What would it look like to return good for evil? In 1999, I was at a youth conference in Atlanta, when the news broke out about two high school boys taking in weapons and shooting up classmates in Columbine High School near Colorado, Denver, Colorado. 
they killed 12 people. Most of them in the class, you know, students and classmates. There's one girl named Rachel Scott. Rachel Scott, without a, without a doubt, was one of the strongest believers in that school. Everybody knew that she loved Jesus. And she was in the library when one of those boys came in with their guns and asked her point blank, do you recant? Do you recant or stop loving Jesus? And witnesses to Rachel Scott's story would say that she said, I will not. I love Jesus. And Jesus loves you. And the boy shot her right on the spot. Those two boys, after they were done, realized they were about to get captured and ended their life. And justice was not fully measured like it should have been. And so the family of Rachel Scott had a choice to make. Evil came in, maniacs, evil for good. They had a chance to respond to evil for evil or good for evil. There was a story on national news a few years back reflecting the family of Rachel Scott and how they respond. Twenty years ago, America witnessed a school shooting so evil, it was beyond comprehension. When I'm going to bring in Craig Scott, he was one of the last people to see your son alive. Hiding in the library, Craig Scott lived through the worst of it, captivating the nation as he recounted those harrowing moments. All these, uh, all these people that I was praying for, 30 minutes later, their brothers and sisters were... Uh, they were other brothers and sisters were showing up. <laughs> but not your sister. I had a friend with me and he uh, tapped me on the shoulder and said, I think there's a girl that's been shot over there. And I looked out from behind the police car and I'm very thankful, but I didn't realize at the time that it was Rachel. She had been killed just right outside the school library. 20 years doesn't erase anything, does it? I definitely felt broken after the shooting. Felt broken. And I don't feel broken anymore. After she died, her family discovered one of Rachel's recent essays. I have this theory, she wrote, that if one person can go out of their way to show compassion, then it will start a chain reaction of the same. Those words became a lifeline for her family. I think that bitter is a road a lot of people would have gone down. Anger, revenge, hate. Right. But you guys went down the path of forgiveness. Yes. As a Christian, I know that the Bible teaches to forgive one another, you know. And so, of course, I wanted to be obedient. <laughs> I didn't feel like it. But so I first started doing it to honor Rachel. 
Forgiveness isn't saying it's okay that this happened. What forgiveness is, is giving yourself permission not to make that your life sentence. Instead, Rachel's family created a nonprofit spreading that message of kindness, and Craig tells her story to students across the country, even publishing an open letter of forgiveness to the Columbine shooters. Why was it important for you to write those words for the world to see? The shooters wanted to make a negative impact on this world, so my decision was that I want to leave a bigger impact, but in a positive way. Mom Beth says she blames the gunman, but has since made an unimaginable connection. There's forgiving, and then there's meeting one of the shooter's moms. We both lost our children, but she had all the shame, the reproach, the hate, and I was really nervous about meeting this woman. I asked the Lord, I said, what am I supposed to say to this mother? And the Lord said, ask her who her son was before April the 20th of 1999. And I did, and tears just rolled down Sue's cheeks. She said, nobody wants to know anything about my little boy that I raised from a little tiny baby. And I just, I saw a mother's heart. And I had that same feeling for Rachel. Rachel really has become that kind of guiding light for you guys, hasn't she? I think about how blessed I was to have this little girl. Uh, I feel honored that I got to be her mother. Especially after the fact when we saw so many good things that came out of her life. I thank God for Rachel. I got to have her for 17 years. I thank God for that. Remarkable. When you live on the high road, it's always remarkable. Because very few people travel there. Don't be easy. Don't be predictable. Don't just respond on the middle road. Respond on the high road. Because you're more like Christ. And ultimately, God gets the glory. Our Father, we thank you for all of us, for what we've learned today. God, I pray you challenge our hearts. I don't know of the circumstances, God, I'm not sure of the relationships that need to be healed. God, I pray that we were always as believers, as Christ followers, no matter how painful it might be, that we will always respond in a way that you responded on the cross. When you cried out on the cross, you said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. God, I pray that we would find ways to offer grace and mercy to those who have harmed us and hurt us. Help us to take the high road. In Jesus' name, amen.